This is Archbishop William Laurie of Baltimore, and you are listening to Catholic Review Radio. Catholic Review Radio is a weekly radio program and podcast hosted by Catholic Review Media, the news operation of the Archdiocese of Baltimore. We are grateful to our Catholic partners for the opportunity to bring quality Catholic programming to our listeners each week. This is Chris Gunty of the Catholic Review. Today on Catholic Review Radio, we're talking with George Weigel, author of To Sanctify the World, The Vital Legacy of Vatican II, which has just been released by Basic Books. George is a distinguished senior fellow of the Ethics and Public Policy Center. He's a Catholic theologian and one of America's leading public intellectuals. He holds EPPC's William E. Simon Chair in Catholic Studies. His column, The Catholic Difference, is available on catholicreview.org and 90 other publications around the world. George grew up in Baltimore and received a Bachelor of Arts from St. Mary's Seminary and University in Baltimore and a Master's Degree from the University of St. Michael's College in Toronto. He's the author of 29 books and several thousand articles published at such sites as First Things and Catholic World Report. He lives in North Bethesda, Maryland. Welcome again to the show, George. Glad to have you back. Thank you, Chris. Good of you to have me. In this new book, you're talking about to sanctify the world, one of the, the main messages of Vatican II. Where does the Second Vatican Council fit in with the other ecumenical councils of the church? Second Vatican Council, which was the 21st ecumenical council, followed the pattern of virtually every other council in that it was called to meet a crisis. Although in this case, the crisis was different. The previous 20 councils had met to deal with internal crises, heresies, uh, the division of Christendom in the Protestant Reformations of the 16th century, so forth and so on. Vatican II was called by John XXIII to meet a civilizational crisis, uh, the crisis of self-understanding in the Western world that had that it already produced in 50 years, two world wars, three totalitarian systems, oceans of blood, mountains of corpses, the greatest persecution of the church in history. The church had to consider what it had to say to that civilizational crisis. And that, I hope, is what is fresh in my interpretation of Vatican II in this book. I locate it within the imperative of the church's response to a world that was coming apart at the seams and that badly needed the light of Christ to respond to that. You know, you quote uh, St. John Henry Newman, a convert to Catholicism in the book, as saying that all times are perilous, but at, at his time, the 1870s were particularly fraught because, quote, Christianity has never had experience of a world simply irreligious, end quote. What would he make of the recent report from the Pew Foundation that within 50 years, Christians, including Catholics, could be a minority in the U.S., outnumbered by those who profess no religion? I suspect uh, St. John Henry Newman would feel vindicated in his prescience here. 150 years, 200 years ahead of time, yeah. Yeah. Newman was speaking primarily about elites 
in in the Britain of his day. But he also, in that famous sermon I quote at the dedication of a new English seminary, said that this would inevitably leak out or leach out into the general populace. And it was something quite different. I mean, the pagan world was pagan, but it was religiously pagan. I mean, there were gods and goddesses and myths and all this business. There was a sense of a transcendent reality within which the human reality was embedded. Uh, that was what was gone, and this was something new. And I think that's what we find uh, in our, our culture today. Uh, our dominant culture is very here and now oriented. Uh, we've lost a sense that the human story is going somewhere. And we've reduced the notion of the human person to one in which each of us is simply a little twitching bundle of desires. Uh, and it's the function of the state to satisfy those desires. That's a pretty ignoble view of the human condition, and yet it's all around us. John XXIII believed that the church had something to say to that, believed that the church should recenter its proclamation on Jesus Christ, who reveals the truth about our humanity, as well as the truth about God, the Father of mercies, and the church should offer itself as a model of authentic human community. That's why the Second Vatican Council eventually came to call the church a sacrament, a kind of sacrament of the unity of the human race. That's what Vatican II was for. So why was Vatican II necessary? You, you talk about it in the book as being necessary. And why were the early 1960s the right time for that? I think those are two different questions, Chris. Um, Vatican II was necessary because this unprecedented crisis, require, a civilizational crisis, required what John XXIII hoped the Council would be, a new experience of Pentecost, out of which the Church would come with a kind of rekindled Christocentric fervor to go out and convert the world. The church needed to get out of the defensive bastions it had built since the Reformation and, and be like, frankly, the first disciples of the Lord Jesus, uh, everyone a missionary. The council happened in the early 60s because John XXIII was pope there, and this was his conviction. Now, that turned out to be problematic in terms of the reception of the council, because as you know, the council met from 1962 to 1965, which means the reception of the council took place just when the cultural tsunami of the 60s was washing over the world. And that was not the calmest moment in which to receive the teaching of Vatican II. And it would have been in the aftermath of the assassination of, of John F. Kennedy and, and all of the, the upheaval that that brought. I mean, all of those kinds of things played into the timing of that, doesn't it? Yeah, it was a very, very uh, explosive cultural, political and social moment uh, in the history of the world, not just the United States. I mean, Europe, Western Europe really came apart uh, in 1968. Um and then, of course, there was the challenge of the sexual revolution, 
which was uh, unfolding throughout the, the 60s. So it was a difficult time uh, for the church to receive this message of Christocentric evangelism. And I think it's only now, perhaps over the last 25 or 30 years, that the church is beginning to live that message, or at least the living parts of the church are, are beginning to live that message. The fundamental point here, or a fundamental point here, is that Vatican II was primarily about Christifying, sanctifying the world. It was not about reinventing the Catholic Church. Ecumenical councils are not constituent assemblies or constitutional conventions. The church already has its form. It was given it by Christ himself. Councils meet in order to help the church better live the Great Commission to go and make disciples of all nations. You kind of made that point in your earlier book, Evangelical Catholicism, and that we are moving toward a place where, uh, and we see it in a lot of dioceses, certainly in the Archdiocese of Baltimore. The planning process here is focused on how do we make better missionary disciples of people? How do we encourage people to have a personal encounter with Christ? How does Vatican II connect with today's uh, way of, of trying to reach out to people and just let them know that, you know, Christ is here and, and saved us and, and, is, and loves us. How does that all fit together? The two central documents of the Second Vatican Council are its two dogmatic constitutions. That's the highest form of, highest level of teaching that an ecumenical council can uh, exercise. The first was on divine revelation. And the council said divine revelation is real. God does speak into the world. And God speaks definitively into the world in the person of the incarnate son of God. Uh, so that notion that Christianity begins with personal friendship with the Lord is deeply embedded in the dogmatic constitution on divine revelation of Vatican II which every Catholic should read. It's a beautiful meditation on the Word of God entering what is often a silent and claustrophobic world and breaking that world open to the truths of, of divine love. The second dogmatic constitution issued by Vatican II was on the church itself, and it is there that the Council uses this phrase, the people of God, which was not the laity only, it was everybody in the church, everyone in the church is a part of the people of God, and each of us has a distinctive role to play in offering others the gift we have been given, which is friendship with the Lord Jesus Christ, the incarnate Son of God. And in a sense, all of the rest of Vatican II is commentary on those two documents. Uh, so I heartily encourage those who are taking up the challenge of missionary discipleship in the Archdiocese of Baltimore to read the Dogmatic Constitution on Divine Revelation and the Dogmatic Constitution on the Church. They read every bit as beautifully today as they did when they were written in the mid-1960s. 
After the break, we're going to talk some more with George Weigel about his newly released book, To Sanctify the World, The Vital Legacy of Vatican II, from Basic Books. This is Chris Gunty, and you're listening to Catholic Review Radio. been a school sister of Notre Dame for 72 years. Most senior Catholic sisters, brothers, and religious order priests served for years with little pay. I always taught the primary grades, and I loved it. Today, hundreds of religious communities lack retirement funds. Your gift to the Retirement Fund for Religious helps provide medications and care. Please give to those who have given a lifetime. Thank you, and God bless you a hundredfold. Donate at your local parish. Catholic News from the Archdiocese of Baltimore and around the world with the Catholic Review. Colin Lucas knows some people won't understand his decision to enter the seminary. Why be a priest at a time when many people still perceive the priesthood negatively? Yet, the 18-year-old parishioner of St. John the Evangelist in Severna Park said it was precisely his experiences interacting with priests and seminarians at his parish that helped inspire him to give his life totally to God. Lucas said he has seen friends totally transformed while in seminary. Being around them just made me want to be like them, he said, just to be better and to be the man of God I'm called to be. Lucas is one of 11 men who have recently been accepted into the priestly formation program for the Archdiocese of Baltimore. Ranging in age from 18 to their mid-40s, they bring the total number of those preparing to become priests for the Archdiocese to 59, a high not seen in four decades. Four of the newly accepted seminarians hail from Colombia, South America, the result of an archdiocesan outreach to recruit more Spanish speakers to serve the growing Hispanic population in the archdiocese. Father Stephen Roth, vocations director for the archdiocese, said the increased number is partly due to the ripple-down effect of having more seminarians available to be present in parishes and schools. Their example inspires more people to consider the priesthood, he said. Over the course of the last few years, new seminarians have included one who gave up medical school to enter the seminary, another who stepped away from a six-figure salary, and another who turned down a scholarship to law school. This year's class includes a youth minister and a psychologist. Candidates for the seminary first undergo interviews with Father Roth. If the vocations director believes a candidate to be strong, he invites him to apply. The applicant then writes an autobiography and an essay on the priesthood. He undergoes background checks, a medical evaluation, and a two-day psychological evaluation conducted by three psychologists. For more on this story, visit catholicreview.org. And for more information about vocations in the Archdiocese, visit bemorevocations.org. From the newsroom of the Catholic Review, I'm George Matasek. This is Archbishop William Laurie of Baltimore, and you are listening to Catholic Review Radio. We're back on Catholic Review Radio, talking with George Weigel about his newly released book, To Sanctify the World, The Vital Legacy of Vatican II. This is Chris Gunty, and you're listening to Catholic Review Radio. George, in your opinion, what's the most important thing that most Catholics misunderstand about Vatican II? I think the the greatest misunderstanding of Vatican II is that it was about reinventing the church rather than about the church sanctifying the world. Uh, the church does not get to reinvent itself. Uh, the church is given a form, a doctrine, 
a structure by Christ himself, and that doctrine develops over time. The church's self-understanding develops over time. And the purpose of Vatican II was to facilitate a development of the church's understanding of itself as a communion of disciples in mission so that it could more effectively sanctify the world. Uh, but the notion that Vatican II, to use a phrase that's often heard today, affected a paradigm shift in the church's self-understanding is just wrong. A paradigm shift is when you go from the geocentric view of the universe to the heliocentric view of the universe. You know, the sun is the center, not the earth, uh, or of the solar system. Uh, the Catholic Church does not do paradigm shifts. The Catholic Church does do developments of doctrine so that its self-understanding, which is what doctrine is, uh, evolves, develops, deepens over time. So I think that's that's the fundamental misunderstanding. And that is, I think, as we both uh, know, that is largely a media-driven set of images. Because the council was the point at which everything Catholic began to get divided into liberal and conservative and progressive and traditionalist. And this is another <laughs> this is another bad idea. As my dear friend Cardinal Francis George said in his first press conference in 1997 when he became the Archbishop of Chicago, Catholic Church is not about left and right. The Catholic Church is about true and false good and bad, noble and base. And we got to get out of these political categories in order to understand the nature of the church and its work as a communion of disciples in mission. Much has been written over the years, over the 50 years since the council ended, about the documents of Vatican II. Why did you feel the need, or the desire even, I guess, to write new interpretations of these? I think the most original thing about this book, Chris, is that it reads the Second Vatican Council through what I call the original intention of Pope John XXIII, which is manifest particularly in his opening address to the Council uh, 60 years ago on October 11th, 1962. Uh, but I also discuss other texts of John XXIII in which he explains that the council is about evangelization and that the center of evangelization is Christ. The church does not propose itself. The church proclaims Christ. Now, to embrace Christ and his cause is to be inserted into the body of Christ, which is the church. But Christ first, church second. So I think, I think that's a fresh approach to this. Then, in terms of the actual 16 documents, I try to read them and explain them in their proper order. The documents of Vatican II are not of all of the same magisterial weight or heft, if you will. Mm -hmm. uh, and you have to read the documents on states of life in the church, for example, bishops, priests, lay faithful, consecrated religious life, and so forth, through the prism of the two dogmatic constitutions we discussed a moment ago. Mm -hmm. How does God speak to the world, and what is the church? So the presentation of the council's teaching is an orderly presentation 
in which the heavyweights come first and the lesser weights, if you will, fill in the picture after we get the big picture that the two heavyweight documents of the council uh, lay out for us. So I think that's that's something fresh. What's the balance between John the Twenty Third's aggiornamento, the the updating of the church or opening doors and windows to let in fresh air, and adherence to tradition? When he opened the second uh, session of the Second Vatican Council, John the Twenty Third's successor, Pope Paul the Sixth, spoke about a continual deepening of the church's relationship to Christ, and he took that he continued that theme in his opening address to the third and fourth periods of the council in 1964 and the fall of 1965. So uh, there is no authentic aggiornamento without Paul VI, a profundimento continuo, a profound continual deepening of the church's relationship to Christ. And that goes back to this matter of misunderstanding the council uh, as a constituent assembly reinventing Catholicism. That's not to repeat what ecumenical councils do. Ecumenical councils deepen the church's grasp of the truths that Christ has given it. They don't invent those truths. Very good. Um, you know, before we've got a few minutes left before we finish today, and I'd, I'd like to get your take on what's going on in Ukraine. I know you've written about this extensively. You've got some experience with that. Uh, we're more than seven months into the war there as a result of invasion by Russia. On your take, George, why are the Ukrainian people so resilient? And why did President Vladimir Putin so badly underestimate that? Something profound, Chris, has happened in Ukraine over the last several years, and that is the emergence of a sense of national identity that cuts across linguistic lines, that cuts across religious lines, that cuts across religious versus secular, that that seems to cut across just about every, every demographic category you can imagine. When Ukrainians were seeking to accelerate their accession to the European Union in, in the winter of 2013-2014, in what we call the Maidan Revolution of Dignity, uh, Maidan being Independent Square in, in Kiev. The phrase that was prominent in those epic days was, we came to, the, to Independent Square, we came to the Maidan looking for Europe, and we found Ukraine. We, we found ourselves. We found ourselves across these former barriers of division. Uh, that intensity of national identity, we are a people with a distinctive culture and history, is the driver of this resistance movement, uh, the resistance to the Russian invasion. And it's very, very impressive and its religious underpinnings do not get enough attention. Uh, the Both the Orthodox Church in Ukraine and the Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church and the Latin Rite Catholic Church have all been intensely involved 
in helping create this new sense of a nation worth defending. Now, on the other side of this, why why did Putin invade? Putin invaded because Putin is a megalomaniac who has never accepted the uh, demise of communism, who believes in a very warped way that that Russia has an imperial identity, that it is his almost messianic task to recreate. And that leads him to believe that Ukrainians and Belarusians uh, are not, these are not real people. Uh, this, these are not real nations. We we own these guys, and we can't be ourselves unless we own these guys. This is a deeply, deeply warped notion. Russia is a deeply wounded political culture, and the effect, the corrupting effects of that, are now evident in the brutality with which Russia has conducted this war, which is really quite unspeakable, and in the ineptness. Of People badly overrated Russian military capacity, just as they underrated Ukraine's will to resist. Mm -hmm. It's a devastating war. When it is over, I hope, with a decisive Ukrainian victory, there will have to be an immense international effort to help Ukraine rebuild and, frankly, to help Russia find a different path into the future because the path it's on now is a danger to the entire world. As we sit in the grocery store, at the gas line, etc. Exactly. Well, we will continue to pray for the people of Ukraine. So we've been talking today with George Weigel about his newly released book, To Sanctify the World, The Vital Legacy of Vatican II. The book is available at basicbooks.com, Amazon, and other booksellers. Thanks so much for being with us today, George. Thank you for having me, Chris. This is Chris Gunty, and you're listening to Catholic Review Radio. The Catholic Review is the only publication in the Archdiocese of Baltimore that covers the Catholic Church full-time. Pick up the monthly magazine at your parish or have it delivered to your home. Subscribe to our e-newsletter for twice-weekly updates. Just text CR Media to 84576. Follow the Catholic Review on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. Read it today in print or online at catholicreview.org. That's catholicreview.org. Tune in to Catholic Review Radio next week. Available on WMET 1160 AM and 103.1 FM. Also, WSJF 92.7 FM in the Sykesville area and WVTO 92.7 FM in Baltimore City. Check us out on SoundCloud or your favorite podcast app. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Catholic Review Radio. As we prepare for the week ahead, let us do so in prayer together as one community of faith. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Let us also ask the blessing and intercession of our Blessed Mother as we pray, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. 
May Almighty God bless us and keep us always in his love.